Well, this morning we continue our studies on the book of James, and today we reach chapter 2, verse 14, through to verse 26, and our reading is once again read by David Suchet, the well-known actor. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Those of you who uh, follow theology and read commentaries and and are interested in comparing what one writer says in the New Testament with another, know that uh, some people think that uh, James and Paul contradict one another. For Paul insists a person is justified by faith alone. And here it appears in this reading today that James is saying the opposite. But the fact is that this idea of contradiction does not stand up when closely examined. It neglects the fact that James and Paul are really trying to correct different mistakes. Paul is concerned to answer the person who is trying to earn their ticket to heaven by obedience to the Old Testament law. But James is concerned to answer the person who thinks that once you've got a ticket to heaven, that's it. Paul is concerned with that aspect of Christian experience which cannot be seen, as it is a secret work of God in the heart. But James is concerned with the practical evidence of Christian experience, which can be seen because it is an open work of God in a person's life. Both Paul and James agree that you must have faith. The point James is making, or is trying to make, is that there is more than one kind of faith, so-called faith. There is, as he puts it, a living faith which saves a person. There is also, he says, a dead faith 
which does a person no good at all. And if you ask James, how do you distinguish those two kinds of faith? He would say this, look at a person's life. See what fruit they produce. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And the implication is, of course, it cannot. And then in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith expresses itself in deeds. And uh, James gives us four practical examples to prove this to us. Two are hypothetical examples which illustrate dead faith. And two are real Old Testament examples which illustrate living faith. And I want to take you through these four examples this morning. First of all, the two hypothetical examples which illustrate dead faith. First of all, what I call the faith of the armchair do-gooder. Look at verses 15 through to 17. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Quite a lot of people locate faith in their their emotions. They think religion is fundamentally a kind of sentimental feelings response. And James here is saying quite clearly that feelings are not enough. Sentiment isn't enough. A faith which is just feelings and nothing more is a dead faith. Here is a hungry person. Are expressions of sympathy going to feed them? No, says James. Unless our feelings of concern are accompanied by acts of concern, they are useless. And by analogy, our religious sentiments, our religious feelings, if not accompanied by appropriate actions, are useless. Good intentions are not enough. James, earlier in this chapter, has been speaking quite a lot about people showing proper respect and care for the poor members of the Christian community. That's the subject of the first 13 verses of chapter 2. And he says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged, judged by the way they act towards the poor and disadvantaged. It's not enough, you see, to say you are a Christian. The practice of mercy requires more than words. It requires action. And in verse 16, James goes on to give an example of what he means. And the the words that he chooses in verse 16 are words which strongly suggest a kind of pious wish, a very passive wish. Go, I wish you well. 
keep warm and well fed. The sort of things you get on Christmas greeting cards or, or get in a, a greetings card someone's in hospital. Get well soon, thinking of you. Best wishes for a prosperous new year. And this particular idea of faith has a very real problem. So often you will find under this idea of faith the view that you can rest your responsibilities towards others on God himself. You don't need to do anything. It's simply enough to express concern and care. Feel a bit for them. Pray a little prayer for them. Under this view, you see, faith and actions are separable. And you'll be amazed how common a view that is. Think of the sixth former doing uh, studies. I won't do any homework tonight. I'll just trust the Lord and uh, see if I can get through the exams. Or people struggling with sin. Well, they might say, I must not try and fight this temptation on my own, in my own strength, must I? No, I'll just let go and let God. Maybe you are the uh, executive, uh, on the executive of the Christian Union. You're speaking together about the program, and you simply say, leave the spirit to plan our program for us. We don't need to invite speakers or book any rooms. Trust the Lord to sort it out. Now, of course, all those examples are caricatures. They are, they are exaggerations, I know that. But behind all these is the fallacy that faith is essentially passive. That it means being passive about problems, being passive about needs. Don't try it, just trust. And all too, too easily, that idea of faith becomes an escapism, a way of escaping responsibility. We've left, we've left it to the Lord, people say. So he can take the glory or the blame. And so under this kind of viewpoint, faith can become an excuse for our negligence, an excuse for our laziness, our indifference, our complacency, our incompetence. And James says it won't do to pass the buck. Faith, if it has no actions, is dead. It is no more real than a corpse is a real person. See, real faith is an incentive to service, to effort, to action. It does not say, I'll do nothing, I'll just trust. Real faith says, I will do something because I trust. That's the way faith, faith's logic works. And so when faith is confronted by social need, it does not just mouth sentiments. It moves sacrificially to meet those needs. It is accompanied by works. And if those works aren't there, faith reveals itself to be a sham and no grounds for heavenly hope at all. So what I call the armchair do-gooder, James, James's first example of a dead faith. His second example of dead faith is what we might call the example of the ivory tower theologian. Look at verses 18 and 19. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. 
Even the demons believe that and shudder. If some people locate faith in their feelings, some others locate faith in the mind. They stand in church, sit in church every Sunday. They say the creed, I believe in one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Maybe their bookshelves are packed with learned volumes. But the trouble is their faith is never put into practice. It's all theory. They argue something like this. Well, everybody has different gifts. Some are practical people. Others of us are thinkers. Well, I'm a thinker. Well, says James, that won't do. It can't be like that. If you think believing doctrine in your head is the same as saving faith, you're in strange company. For the devil himself believes sound doctrine in his head. There's no more, no Bible school more orthodox than the theological college of hell. The devil knows the creed better than any of us. He knows the Bible. But of course, will the devil get into heaven? Of course not. He believes and shudders with fear and implies, James, says James, that there are some who call themselves Christians who should be in a similar state of tremor for theirs is a dead faith. Think of it it this way. I could tell you that I know the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Up to a point, it's true, that statement. I recognise his picture I could describe to you you his, his smile. I could tell you a bit about his background. I could tell you even a bit about his character. But I have never met him. You see, it is one thing to know about somebody intellectually. It's quite another to know somebody personally. And in the same way, it's one thing to say you believe things about God... It's another thing altogether to trust him personally. An intellectual belief and personal trust are quite different. And that difference becomes apparent, says James, when we are called upon to do something. You show your faith without deeds and I show you my faith by what I do. We do not go to heaven by praying good creedal compliments, but by placing our lives practically in God's hands. Head knowledge just isn't enough, says James. So here we have it then. Faith is not the sentimental stirring of my emotions. It's not an intellectual assent in my mind. Well, what is real faith then? Real faith, I'm saying, is not located in the feelings or in the mind. Real faith is located in the will, in the heart, to use the Bible description. And because that's where real faith is located, it affects every part of my personality. Our emotions, yes. Faith changes our emotional responses. Our reason, intellect, yes. Faith changes our intellectual responses. But the real test is that faith changes our will, our actions. If it doesn't, It isn't biblical faith. So James goes on to to give us two positive examples of a living faith. And both are drawn from the Old Testament. Now, the first one is Abraham. 
What does James say about Abraham? Look at verses 20 to 22. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Whatever way you look at it, God's instructions to lay Isaac on the altar was quite extraordinary. For a start, it did not make sense in the light of God's promise. Isaac was to be Abraham's heir, to be the start of a great nation. How could that great nation come about if Isaac was dead? And secondly, it did not make sense in the light of God's character. Pagan gods might require human sacrifice. But when does the God of the Bible demand that kind of awful thing? No, it was an extremely odd thing for God to require. Yet, we read Abraham was willing to do it. Why was he willing? Because he trusted God. Quite clearly, says James, faith for Abraham was not your warm sentiments, nor was it mere intellectual conviction. Abraham's faith was a power which moved his will to obey God, even when he could not understand the command, and even when his obedience was immensely costly. His faith and actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friends. Let me point out Abraham was not earning his salvation by that obedience. We must not think that. But he was demonstrating that quality of relationship that he had with God. He was called God's friend. He personally trusted God and it showed in the way he lived. Now at this point it's worth asking ourselves whether our faith is the sort that is willing at times to make sacrifices. So let me ask, what is your most precious thing? What is your Isaac? Is it your ambition, your career, your drive to excel at sport, your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, child. Suppose God took that precious thing away. Is it God we really want or just his blessings? Well, Abraham makes it clear, real faith is a faith that obeys and obeys sacrificially. Now, what about the second example? What about Rahab. That's James's second example, verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Now, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Why James should choose Rahab as an example? She was certainly not a paragon of virtue, she was a prostitute, as James makes clear. 
Now, some say James chose Rahab and Abraham because in Jewish tradition, both had a reputation for hospitality. Well, maybe that's true. Personally, I expect there's another explanation for it. I think James selects these two characters because both of them pose moral problems. Abraham, with the child sacrifice, very odd for God to command. Rahab, her deception, very odd for God to commend. They are awkward stories. They raise problems. And I wonder if God, if James rather, had chosen them for that very reason. What James is talking about here, you see, are deeds of faith. Actions that proceed from faith. Actions that evidence faith. He's not saying Abraham or Rahab were morally perfect, but they were believers, genuine believers, and there were actions in their lives which proved they were believers. In Abraham's case, the willingness to make sacrifice. In Rahab's case, the willingness to put her own life in jeopardy, to face danger, to face ostracizing from her own people because she had taken she had chosen to take sides with God's people. And again, let me put a question here. Are we up to that kind of test of faith? You never do know what faith is going to require of you. When you put your personal trust in God, you can be in for anything. And what James is insisting upon here, what he is sure about here, is that Faith will require something. And faith will express itself visibly, publicly. And the last verse makes James' point clear. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You see, a man, woman, possesses a visible dimension, a body. And he or she possesses an invisible dimension, their spirit. You know a man is alive that he's got that invisible spirit because you see his visible body moving. In the same way, a Christian's invisible faith is shown to be alive by his or her actions. A person is no more spiritually alive without actions than a person is physically alive without breath in their lungs. You cannot have life without the breath of the vitality. You cannot have faith without deeds. And that's James's logic. And I would say, categorically, 100%, that Paul would have agreed with that. God is only interested in a faith that shows itself in obedience and practices the word of God.